0: Says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, Taking his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And Father, we humbly ask as we open the word of God now together as an act of worship to continue in our worship of you and your Son, that your Holy Spirit would now prepare us each individually in every way that we need that from you. Ready our hearts that we might hear what you would say to us as the living God, what you would speak to us, that we might receive whatever intent and thought and reason you had behind recording this portion of Scripture. Bless your word and speak to us now by your Spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. D.L. Moody, a great preacher of old, made this statement, I quote, he said, A loving act may be more powerful and far-reaching than the most eloquent sermon. A loving act, he said, may be more powerful and far-reaching than the most eloquent sermon. I think the events that you see taking place in this passage of Scripture in front of us this morning is a very filling illustration of that reality. Jesus' love is not being declared in these eloquent, poetic, winsome words, but instead Jesus' love and the extent of his love is being demonstrated through actions of great servanthood. We have recorded here in the Bible, probably, I think, my opinion, one of the greatest displays of humble servanthood that have ever transpired on this planet. Where Creator God Himself, here in human flesh on this earth, in an utter display of humility, served humanity that He created in the most lowly task in many ways that existed in that culture. Look with me in verse 1 as we work our way through this. Let's begin to set the stage for what was taking place. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now these first three verses here, which kind of set the stage for this display of servanthood that Jesus does, inform us of two things first of all jesus's awareness that is what he was aware of at the moment he chose to do this as well as what was jesus's primary interest let's first talk about what jesus was aware of as the holy spirit records for us in these verses the first thing we take note of here in these verses is that jesus knew his time on earth living as a man was now drawing to a close that you could say he had limited opportunity left and he recognized the time was short and he had limited opportunity left. Verse 1 tells us there that they were celebrating the Feast of Passover right on the horizon of that. Now, they were right on the horizon of the Feast of Passover being celebrated. Remember, we've said before, we've talked about this, Passover was one of the three major or what we might call mandatory feasts of the Jews Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, there were other feasts, but these three were the major feasts <clears throat> for Jewish males, particularly required to be in Jerusalem. And Passover, as we've said, celebrated God's deliverance <clears throat> Excuse me, out of slavery in Egypt, which happened, remember, through the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the occasion of God's deliverance. Now, Jesus knew particularly that this specific Passover was scheduled on God's divine calendar, which he now in his own life as himself being the sacrificial lamb of God would be the ultimate fulfillment of this celebration. He would allow himself, his life in his sinless humanity To be sacrificed in death as in a sense the the substitutional lamb that his blood might be shed remember john the baptist when he pointed to jesus said to him behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so jesus knows this passover is now the culmination of all this feast has represented and that his life would now be sacrificed so people could be delivered spiritually delivered out of slavery to sin and the power of sin and the punishment of sin and anyone who would trust in the work of jesus's life and his shed blood for them could be delivered in the exact same way the point being this as well keep in mind as we come to john 13 we're now within a 24-hour window before the death of jesus upon the cross 24 to perhaps 36 hours jesus's life will be taken from as he lays it down and it says there in verse one notice the text it says jesus knew that his hour that's what that's a reference to had come that he should depart from this world to the father so jesus who is god had come to this earth from the very throne of God where he'd been for all of eternity. He came to this earth to live among us as a man for a set duration of time, to do a few things. First of all, to reveal God to us, that we might see what God is fully like. Jesus is gonna say in the next chapter, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God revealed to you. Jesus also came to this earth for a time to minister among humanity, to teach people the ways of God and the kingdom of God, to uh, heal people, to minister to people in different capacities, to do miracles. And now the race of his earthly ministry is, if you would, turning the corner on the last lap. And Jesus knows that he's about to, if you would, cross the finish line. And remember, when Jesus dies on the cross, what's his statement going to be? It is finished that was the finish line and he can see the finish line in front of him after he dies he'll rise back from the power of death and then he will make his departure as verse one says back to the father in heaven where he once was back at the right hand of god so he's keenly aware keenly aware at this point in time that his time is very limited as a man On this earth to serve in a body of flesh among humanity that he was with for this set time. And that awareness, I think, is one of the things we see here that motivated Jesus to pour out the fullness of his life to the greatest extent because he knew, I don't have much time left to do this. I have a limited amount of time left as a man to pour out my life before the departure of my death. And so, therefore, it motivated Jesus, that awareness, to serve in the way we see him doing such in chapter 13. A second thing we're told that Jesus was aware of that motivated this is he also, verse 2, it tells us, was aware that the devil had just set in motion his very dark and evil plan. The idea is that spiritual warfare is rising and it's somewhat at its peak at this point. Verse two says that at this point, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So Jesus, again, is aware of this reality. I want you to consider from verse two here what the Bible is actually showing and saying to us. Judas, who had walked with Jesus, right, as one of the 12 disciples. And I want you to just... Ponder this for a moment. Imagine everything Judas Iscariot was exposed to and saw. Judas Iscariot saw the miracles of Jesus firsthand. Judas Iscariot, as one of the 12 disciples walking around with Jesus, he heard all the teachings. This guy could never complain. The preaching was so bad at the church I attended. He could never say it. He heard Jesus in all his public teachings. More than that, He spent time with Jesus and the disciples, so he heard all the private one-on-one kind of conversations that Jesus would share at times with his disciples and individuals. Judas Iscariot had first-hand exposure to the Son of God, to the work of God, and yet, despite all that, in his heart, he never genuinely committed himself to Jesus as Lord. I want you to please see this. This man had been thoroughly exposed to the Lord and to the things of the Lord, but he had never experienced the Lord for himself. Thoroughly exposed to the things of the Lord, but he had never experienced the Lord for himself. That's something we all need to be careful of. And I think the Bible reminds us here that a stubborn refusal of much light causes a human heart to become very vulnerable to great darkness. Very vulnerable. You'd have been better not to have heard the truth. You would have been better of not to seen the things of God. But when a heart is exposed and exposed and exposed and exposed to the things of the Lord, raised in a Christian home, sit in church every week, I mean, just exposed to the things of the Lord, but yet you never truly yield your heart, to the Lord and have an experience with Jesus yourself, you are making yourself very vulnerable to not just darkness, but great darkness because it's Judas who it says actually allowed the devil to work in his heart and mind in such a way that it says the devil actually put his very desires into the heart of Judas himself to actually betray the very son of God In death. And we notice in this very special hour where the divine plans and purposes of God are unfolding, there's a simultaneous rise in the work of the devil as well. And as God's plan is unfolding, the devil is seeking to run interference to do something hurtful and evil. And perhaps Jesus being aware of this, and we know he was aware of this happening because verse 11, we read that Jesus knew who would betray him. So he's fully aware of the demonic activity, the darkness unfolding, the the height of spiritual warfare. And perhaps that's what prompted Jesus as well as an effort of contrast to do the very thing he does here in John chapter 13. That because there's going to be the epitome of human selfish betrayal, Jesus wants to show the exact opposite of the epitome of love and servanthood and humility and putting others before himself and his own interests. And perhaps he even wants to show deep love and devotion and humble servanthood to maybe even try one last time to soften Judas' heart to reach judas's heart can you imagine jesus knowing this about judas and yet he washes judas's feet trying to perhaps again soften his heart melt the hardness awaken him before it's too late a third and final thing we see as well here that jesus was aware of and i think the story reveals to us verse three is that jesus was clearly secure in who he was He was secure in who he was, therefore he wasn't driven to prove something here in this servanthood or strive for a position. It says in verse 3 that he knew that the Father had given things into his hands and that he had come from God and he knew that he was going back there to heaven to the throne of God. So Jesus being fully aware of who he was in his own security as what is he right now, living as a man, so he's a man in his humanity, but he's fully secure in who he is, in his relationship with the Father in heaven. And Jesus' sense of security came from that relationship with his Father in heaven. And because he has a sense of inward security as a man, always the image of the perfect man and what perfect manhood looks like, because of his security in his relationship with God the Father, that freed Jesus to serve in the humble, sacrificial ways that he did. He didn't need to prove anything. He didn't need to be hung up on himself. His security and who he was freed him to just lay out his life in great humble servanthood. And let me just say by way of application, as we see Jesus aware of these things that we just mentioned, I think in our lives as well, if we remain aware of the same things, it will also help us, free us, and motivate us to be humble servants as well. For example, if I realize I only have a limited time and opportunity to serve people and to realize times seem to be getting dark. What if Jesus returns today, tomorrow, next week? There's a limited window of time. I want to serve now. I don't want to sit on my spiritual duff and waste time because time is limited. Now is the time that's available. The Bible says, redeem the time. For some of us, listen, You ain't getting any younger. Take a look in the mirror again. Oh, I'm I'm too old to serve the Lord. Let these young people say. No, listen, you have a limited time left. Finish well. Cross the finish line. Put in the extra effort. Whether you got a cramp or you're tired or what you put in the extra effort and finish well. You may have a limited time left. Spend it well. Give yourself fully to the ways of the Lord and serving him in the fullest of all your strength. And when you realize as well, like Jesus, that the devil is working and times are very dark and there's a lot of spiritual warfare and what is the devil trying to do the same today? He's trying to hurt and ruin people's lives. That should motivate us as Christians to say, you know what? In the same way, I'm not gonna watch some bully pick on some little boy and do nothing about it. I don't want to sit around while the devil is trying to hurt and ruin and destroy lives. If I can do something spiritual, Christ like, to counteract the darkness of the devil in my sphere of influence, I want to do that. That should motivate us to want to spread light and to serve the Lord. And as well, like Jesus in this thing with the security that he had. I think sometimes as human beings, if we could just get past our own personal insecurities, It would really free us to serve the Lord to much greater degrees, maybe, than we often do in our lives. Now, not only do we see what Jesus was aware of, but before we move on to verse 4 and what he did, notice also, again, back from verse 1, what was Jesus' interest here in this servanthood? It says in the end of verse 1, look at the text there, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to The end. So what motivated, directed Jesus' humble servanthood? Jesus served and ministered to people. Here it is. It's complicated. Because he loved them. Because he loved them. Now, this is important. And here I'll tell you why. Because we can serve people even though we don't love them. Most of you do that all week long in your job. (laughs) Right? You serve faithfully because you want a paycheck, you want to retain your job, don't necessarily love the people you serve, but you serve them and you serve them well. We can serve people without loving them, but God wants us to serve people because we love them. That's the purest motivation of service that he wants. Jesus had a great love in his heart for his followers. He'd already shown them great extents of his love in so many ways, but now again, he's compelled to demonstrate still more of his great love for them to reveal to them to greater degrees further. It mattered to Jesus, it seems to me, it mattered to Jesus that people would be aware how much he loved them. You know that matters to Jesus? It matters to Jesus that you would be aware how much he loves you. And as followers of Jesus, that should be our heart, that that it matters to us. It really matters that people would see, sense, and become aware, not just that we love them, but how much we love them. The full extent of our love, that we want to show that. In fact, one translation renders this verse here. He showed them the full extent of his love. And how did he do that? Well, the text shows us he did it by a display of humble uh, humble servanthood, treating them as more important than himself and then ultimately making the greatest personal sacrifice, as he's going to do in 24 hours, to lay down his life completely, dying to himself to basically make the lives of other people better. Again, Jesus' love, the full extent of it was not something he spoke about, it was something that he showed by actions, through servanthood and ministering to people, it was revealed through personal sacrifice and acts of service that made another's life better. And for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, as his spirit dwells within us and the spirit of Christ works within us, making us more Christ like, our highest interest ought to be. The same as Jesus is because Jesus hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if I'm letting Jesus work in my life, my highest motivator, my highest interest ought to be to show the full extent of love, the love of Christ that he's pouring into my heart by his spirit. And we need to be careful, again, as I said, that we don't serve just because it's right to serve. But that we have that 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3 experience where we realize I can speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if I don't have love, I'm really just an annoying thing like clanging cymbals. That's gonna, it's actually going to drive people away because they'll sense that you're saying great things, but you don't care an ounce. Honestly, you just like listening to yourself sound good. Or if we make great sacrifices, but we have love, 1 Corinthians 13 says that then it it equates to nothing from God's estimation. So again, this is important that love be displayed through humble servanthood, that we treat others better than ourselves, that we make people feel more important than us. That's love. That's showing love. Letting others value excel and treating them as more important, showing our willingness to help and sacrifice. Now, as we look at what Jesus does here in the text, the setting clearly, as you can see, it's referenced in verse two. It's referenced again that this is now a supper. This is part of the celebration of the Passover meal, which had many different stages in it. We're not certain exactly commentators dispute exactly what part of the the meal that Jesus got up and did what he did, but to understand and envision the scene like a picture, a movie in your mind really helps. We said this before, but for sake of context, remember the way that they ate culturally in that day is not how we're going to eat some of us, many of us at our typical meals at Thanksgiving okay they didn't sit at high tables with straight back chairs and use forks and plates and and utensils they ate very differently they usually ate these type of meals around a very low u-shaped table and they would recline they would sit or kind of lay on large pillows like big throw pillows and they would recline on one arm as they kind of laid on on their side with their feet out away from the eating area that was important and they would eat with their hands this is why it was a very intimate thing you would just pull off a chunk of meat the guys were like that and you just Pull off a chunk of meat there, or you would tear off a piece of of uh, you know bread, and you you dip it into the sauces. And there were no double dipping rules and all that stuff. You just because of that, this is why Jews and Gentiles would not eat together, because the idea is that we're becoming one. Your germs and my germs and it's mixing together, and 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 there was a sense of there's a unity that happened when people ate together. So this is how they would be eating this meal, reclining on their side, using their hands, eating the food, their feet out away from the table. And also it was customary, and this goes into what we're looking at now, as the guests entered, it was especially for a special meal like this, very cultural before supper started to have your feet washed as an act of kindness as well as an act of hygiene. And so, therefore, this was a typical thing. Understand, this was a hot mid-eastern climate. I've been to, you know, mission trips before. Maybe you have as well. You go to like a hot climate or wherever, a hot mid-eastern climate. So people sweated a lot. Roads were not paved. They were dirty, they were dusty uh, trails and roads as you walked around. So as you walked in a hot climate where you're sweaty and you're kicking up dust as you're walking, you're wearing open-soled sandals. So understandably, what happened? Dirt and dust and remnants from plumbing, which a lot of times was just out the window, not nice cultural plumbing we have here in the States, this stuff would get all over your feet. So dirt and dust, your ankle area would become, honestly, pretty gross. Feet were pretty dirty. And so because of that, this was just a very kind, refreshing gesture culturally when guests entered, especially for a meal. One of your servants would put water in a basin and would go over and would wash your guests' feet and wipe them dry with a towel. So for obvious reasons, here's the point, It was quite a humble task of servanthood. It was not the most pleasant job to wash someone's feet. Typically, it was reserved for the lowest guy on the totem pole of the household servants, the lowest ranking servant. He got the dirty feet washing job. It was not a very pleasant thing. Apparently, upon arriving for this meal, as we can see, nobody washed feet. It just didn't happen. We don't know why. And Jesus being spiritually sensitive and a loving servant notices that this has been left unaddressed. Look at verse four. So therefore, it says Jesus did what? He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Now, Jewish men typically wore a lightweight inner garment, like a long shirt, if you would, And then they wore a more heavy outer garment. And here Jesus, you can envision the scene, he gets up from the meal, he takes off the outer garment, he still has the inner one on, the lighter robe, he takes off the outer garment while others are just talking and enjoying himself. He takes off the outer garment. Why? As I said, because he doesn't want it to get all wet and stained and defiled and muddy because this was a dirty, gross job. And there's a multitude of people whose feet need to be washed. So as others are talking, he goes over, takes off the garment, puts a towel and starts wrapping it around his waist like an apron, taking the appearance of a household servant and indicating that he's about to start washing feet. Verse 5 says, after that, he then poured water in a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So Jesus, now, without any words, he quietly gets up, not drawing any attention to himself, and he starts to just wash everyone in the room's feet going around the room. Now, what's interesting, Luke 22 gives us an insight. It tells us the disciples around this time had recently been arguing about who should be considered the greatest Now, you have to wonder, as nobody washed feet when they came in the house that day, were the disciples even looking around the room thinking in their minds, how rude. Where is the owner of this upper room's servant? The guy calling sick today or something? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, mean, what kind of a place is this? Can't they see what needs to be done? Certainly someone needs to take care of this. And perhaps they're sitting there thinking this in their minds, and then Jesus, without saying anything, he just you know gets up, goes over, getting himself geared up, puts the water in the basin, and then he, without saying a word, without drawing attention, just quietly in the midst of this, while others are talking, enjoying themselves, he starts one by one washing all of the disciples' feet. He sees a need that needs to be addressed. He realizes that no one else is taking care of it. So he just starts doing it. And he just starts addressing what's there, takes it upon himself to do what needs to be done. He goes over, pours the water in the basin, starts washing feet, wiping them with the towel. And here's one of the, you know, th- this is the greatest one among the group. And he's showing them what greatness is. Because now he's the one here taking the lowly, humble task of ministry. Jesus teaches us here what it means to be a servant of the Lord. What it really means to do true ministry. Two things I would draw to your attention. First of all, Jesus got actively involved. What does true ministry look like? He got actively involved. Let me simplify it in one word. He served. He served. Jesus is not giving a lecture on dirty feet. He's not giving a lecture on love or how to be humble. He's not complaining about the stinky atmosphere or pointing the things that need to be done. Instead, he just got up and he did something to solve a problem. He just served. He just addressed what was going on. And by way of application for us, God is not interested in more people who can identify problems better. We can all see them. They're obvious. God's not interested or in need of more people to diagnose issues and wonder, who's supposed to take care of that? I mean, where sometimes we can all be guilty of, of we we uh, kind of subtly are thinking, Well, I mean, why doesn't anyone, you fill in the blank, why doesn't anyone do this? Or why don't we do that? Or why doesn't anyone take care of And God doesn't need that. What God needs is more people who help with existing needs that you just see what needs to be done and you recognize it's an opportunity to serve and serve in an obvious way where a need already exists. Let me caution you against something in our humanity. Don't be selective in serving where you have this mindset where you'll only serve if it meets your personal preferences or you'll only serve if It seems to be something that fits your standard or works out for you. True ministry, ladies and gentlemen, is really not rocket science. I wouldn't be standing up here if it was, I assure you that. I have my high school diploma. And then I have CD. That's the title, college dropout. It's not rocket science. It really is not rocket science. It's a matter of recognizing, hey, how can I roll up my sleeves, serve Jesus, serve people, find a way to make myself useful, show up early, stay late, you know, just find what, what needs to be done, see how I can help in some way, practically, a, a family member, a neighbor, a friend, a fellow Christian in the body of Christ. Jesus said what? There's always plenty of work. He said, the laborers are few. <laughs> That's the lack, he said. Just people who are willing to, to labor. People, a lot of people want to lecture. Listen, I pastored here. I pastored in Pennsylvania for 13 years. I would have people who come to church on a Sunday morning, do absolutely nothing. A few occasions, you know, do absolutely nothing to help in any way. Come to church on a Sunday morning, and then they'd say, can I meet with you? I, God's calling me to be your assistant pastor. Hello? Listen, we love, but we need to just be laborers. How can I labor, Lord? How can I just help and make myself useful? This, that's really what true ministry is from a kingdom perspective. And Jesus quietly and humbly served in a way, doesn't it kind of seem there, in a way that's kind of unannounced here? You don't sense Jesus having to indicate, let everybody know what he's doing. And there's none of this you know, where he got up from the meal and the Bible records that he said, brothers, if you'll pardon me and keep me in prayer. I need to do an act of service here. There's none of this. He just gets up. He sees what needs to be done. He just quietly, humbly addresses it, not looking for recognition or other people to be aware. He cared that the Father in heaven was aware and that's what matters most. Well, verse 6 says, then he comes around to Simon Peter and you can imagine things are going to get interesting now, right? Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? So we have to imagine as Jesus is going around the room doing this, you're sure there's awkward shock filling the room at this point. Again, this is God washing people's feet. And as it gets awkward in the room, as Jesus is quietly doing this, Peter has to break the silence. So he says, Lord, are you washing my feet? This felt so out of place. He could tell it was very unusual. Jesus was their leader and their Lord. He's thinking, why is he humbly serving in this way? Why is he doing this? And it's making Peter feel uncomfortable. Jesus, notice his style of leadership is very different than worldly leadership. Worldly leadership, leaders have people serve them, right? That's how leaders operate in the world. Jesus' style of leadership is completely contradictory to that. He is a leader is showing servant leadership and serving people who he leads. And this is the type of leadership Jesus wants from us. But as this is happening, this humble servanthood is ministering to Peter and Peter's really uneasy with this. He's perplexed by it. So because of that, it seems you can tell from verse eight, it's hard for Peter to receive what Jesus is doing for him. That's what's going on. Lord, Are you washing my feet? Peter's struggling with what the Lord was doing in his life. Look at verse 7. Jesus answered and said, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. So Jesus indicates, Peter, you don't understand fully what I'm doing for you right now. However, in time, be patient. It's going to become more clear because he didn't understand why Jesus was doing what he was doing in his life. He felt unsettled. He was struggling to figure it out. However, Jesus assures him, in time, Peter, you're going to get clarity on this. And you're going to see what I'm doing in your life. And you're going to understand why I'm working in the way I am. There's a lesson in the midst of this. And I look at verse 7, and I think sometimes Jesus' words there are for all of us in our life experience. Because perhaps even right now, Jesus is working in your life in such a way And you're not fully sure why he's working in the way that he's working in your life. And maybe Jesus would say to you, as he said to Peter, what I'm doing right now, you don't understand, but you'll know afterwards. In other words, sometimes Jesus says to us, trust me, though you don't get it now, give me time. You're going to see what I'm doing for you. I know you don't see what I'm doing right now. You don't understand it. But just give me time. Just be patient in time you'll see what I'm doing when you go, ah, that's what the Lord was doing in my life. I didn't understand it when it was happening, but a lot of times in hindsight, the picture begins to come together and the dots are connected by the Lord. Well, sometimes Peter was so busy thinking and talking, right? He didn't always take time to listen. So look what goes on in our account here. Verse eight, Peter then said in response to Jesus, rather adamantly, you shall never wash my feet Exclamation point now it's possible speculation Peter becomes so adamant now where he's not questioning, but he actually refuses your net Lord I'm telling you now you are not doing that. Cut it out and, and he adamantly refuses Jesus to do this now. it could be maybe he thought this was a test from the Lord. I just think how maybe Peter and they might have thought maybe he's watching Jesus go around the room and he's washing each one of their feet. And nobody's saying anything. They're all just shock and awe, total silence. So Peter starts deducing, ah, I get it. This is a test. He's just waiting for somebody to be humble enough to admit that he shouldn't be doing this and that we should be refusing that and and say, Lord, I'm not important enough for you to do that. So Peter, maybe thinking that, says, I guess I need to be the leader here again to show what spiritual discernment looks like So as Jesus is coming around the room, he gets to Peter, and Peter's thinking, here's my moment, here's my moment. Watch this, and he says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Never. I'm not going to let you do that, Lord. I just, I won't settle for that. And he's probably expecting for all of a sudden for everybody to go, wow, Or, or Jesus to give him a commendation, but rather look what happens Jesus answered and said, verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter, then, you know his personality, Lord, forget the foot washing, give me a bath. (laughs) Give it all you got, Lord. He just goes all the way to the other end. He surprisingly here is caught off guard as Jesus does what? He cautions and indicates to Peter basically this. Peter, if you don't receive by faith, though you don't understand it, If you don't receive by faith what I'm doing for you in your life, you can't have any part or connection to me. Now, I think there's a good reminder here for us. It is never wise for us to turn down or to stop Jesus from what he's trying to do in our life. Be careful of that. Don't ever turn Jesus down or try and stop what Jesus is trying to do in your life. Just let him do it. Even if you don't understand it, believe him and trust him that he knows what he's doing. Well, Peter loved the Lord. He didn't like the sounds of this no part with me. He flies to the other end of the extreme. Give me a bath, Lord, everything you got. Well, Jesus then, it says, verse 10, answers and says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are all clean, but not all of you. For he knew, again, verse 11, who would betray him, and therefore he said, "You are not all clean." Now Jesus is speaking here in these verses about spiritual ideas, using again what physical or or natural things and actions as a picture and illustration. Here's basically what's being said: When a person got a bath in that culture, they would get a, a, a bath; their overall body was completely clean. But then, as they walked on the dirty and dusty Palestinian roads, their feet would right away get defiled. They would incur dirt on their feet. Uh, They didn't need a complete bath all over again every single time, but they did need to periodically and frequently wash off the defilement they had incurred on their feet as they took steps on their journey along the roadways. This is a picture of the spiritual life and our experience with Christ, his cleansing of sin from our lives. This is what Jesus is alluding to. When we come to Jesus for salvation, we're completely washed and cleansed from sin. Titus 2, or Titus 3, excuse me, says it this way. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, as a Christian, When we were saved by Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleansed us from all sin. We got a spiritual bath, head to toe. We were forgiven and washed clean. However, as we walk and journey through this dark, sinful world each and every day, we take steps sometimes that are sinful. And we misstep. And as we misstep spiritually, if you would, we sort of get our feet dirty. Uh, no pun intended here, but our, our soul gets dirty. Do you understand? The, we, we misstep, and as a result, our feet sort of get defiled as we're just walking out our lives because we misstep into sin here. And, and as a result of that, we don't need a whole spiritual bath. We don't need to get saved all over again because we misstepped spiritually and got a little defilement in our soul and in our life. We just need Jesus to wash some of the recent filth off, to cleanse our conscience, if you would, inwardly, to refresh and to renew our walk and our relationship with Him and sort of wash our feet. It's the practice of 1 John one nine, which basically says if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're forgiven of all sin, bathed spiritually in the blood of Christ, but as we walk, sometimes I take steps into things I shouldn't step into in my action or my attitude or my words and I misstep and my feet get dirty and I have to come to Jesus and say, Lord, thank you that I'm cleansed, I'm righteous in the blood of Christ. However, Lord, I don't want things to be amiss between me and you relationally. So would you wash my feet Lord? would you cleanse my soul? And I just acknowledge this and make me right that I could again be walking upright and pure before you. And this is the picture that Jesus is somewhat alluding to in these things here. Verse 12, let's go on. He says, when he washed their feet and taken his garments, he then sat down again and said to them, here's the application now, do you know what I've done to you? So he wants to make personal application. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. So Jesus says, You call me teacher. A teacher is someone that we listen to, that we receive guidance from and direction. A Lord is someone that we obey or submit to their rulership. So Jesus says, You call me your teacher and your Lord, and you say, Rightly so. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So Jesus using his life now as an example, an illustration, he specifically says it, wants that to be an incentive for them also to perform acts of humble servanthood amongst one another. Basically, Jesus is saying here, if or since I as your teacher, your Lord, your leader have served you in this way, holding a higher position of authority than you have among our ministry team, if I've then humbled myself, taken the lowest work or job and washed your feet humbly, he's saying surely then, surely you should have reason and motivation to serve one another in humble ways like this as well to follow the example that I have demonstrated for you. And Jesus directly says in verse 15, specifically as a command, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So he purposely did this, the Bible says, in order to give an example from his life, how his attitude was, what his actions were. He says, I gave you an example as a man, notice the text there, he says, so that you should do as I have done, not ignore what I've done, but that you would do exactly what I have just shown you as a pattern. This is the only time Jesus refers to using his life as an example with that term. And what's the, I mean, Jesus goes, look, I've given you an example how to do great miracles. I've given you an example how to preach the gospel. I've given you an example. He says, I've given you an example of what? servanthood it's the only thing jesus says i've given you an example that you would do as i have done that we would emulate jesus in servanthood spurgeon said this the very motto of the christian should be i serve i serve and the question for us this morning is are you following jesus example am i doing what jesus has done Am I living that out in my life, putting it into practice, imitating it? How can I find ways, how can you find ways to be humble servants in our family, in our home life, in our schools, in our workplaces, in the church, in the world? And I don't think Jesus specifically in this day and age may be as much concerned about washing feet as the pressing issue. But what would this look like in our culture today? humble forms of servanthood. What would it look like? How could we do similar things in our day to be servants? Jesus even cautions in verse 16 that we never think any work is above our pay grade somehow. He says, look, if I, your master, have done this, certainly you should do it. We have to be careful. We never look at anything as if somehow that's for someone lower on the totem pole when our Lord has done the lowest thing that could be done. Look how he concludes verse 17. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus identifies here what will produce inwardly a sense of joy, internal satisfaction, a measure of inward happiness. It's not possessing information and knowledge about how to be a good servant. It's not nodding our head when we read in the Bible, that boy that, that, that's that's good. Amen. Yes. Amen. That's good assenting to the truth Jesus says what will bring about being blessed which means to be happy in essence he says do you want to be blessed put it into practice he says blessed are you if you do these things it's when we put into practice these things by living them out becoming a doer of the word walking out practical actions Jesus says if you serve others it will serve you very well It'll serve you very well, but you got to put it into practice. Jesus who knows us better than anybody because he's God, pay attention here, gives us a free antidote. Here it is. Free antidote. Save a trip to the doctor. You probably may not have to pay a counselor anymore. He gives a free antidote right here for being miserable and unhappy and depressed and anxious and empty. He says, "Here it is. Take a break." from focusing on yourself and find a practical way to serve people. And he says, if you do that, you will find it will be very therapeutic for your mental health and your emotional health and your spiritual health because you simply served. I don't know, but perhaps if we all just serve people more, we would all have less time to think and less time to complain. Amen?